Welcome to Warpod, a podcast brought to you by Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. In this episode, we look at the implications of hybrid warfare for protecting civilians in conflict. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I'm Delina Goggio, Associate Fellow at Egmont Institute and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Italy. Joining us today, we welcome Johan Lawson, an independent researcher on defense and security issues, and Lisa Baran, Civics Country Director for Ukraine. We spoke about the report they published last year on the impact of hybrid warfare on the civilian population in Ukraine. The conflict in eastern Ukraine began in early 2014 and there have been frequent flare-ups in violence and escalations in tensions between Ukraine, Russia, the US and others such as the UK. Over the last seven years, fighting between Ukrainian and Russian-led forces has been responsible for substantial civilian harm in the region. And as well as the use of conventional forces, there has been the use of hybrid warfare. Hybrid threats combine military and non-military, as well as covert and overt means, including disinformation, cyber attacks, economic pressure, deployment of irregular armed groups and the use of regular forces. All parties to armed conflicts are responsible for ensuring that the civilian population is protected. But it's easier to understand protecting civilians from bullets than from misinformation. So while the risks of conventional military forces on civilian populations are increasingly being understood, much less is known about the risks posed by these hybrid tactics. Through extensive research and interviews with a range of experts within Ukraine, but also abroad, you and Elisa start to address this gap in our understanding. I'm going to open up this conversation with the question to you and first. So we're really excited to have you on the podcast, you and especially given your research project on hybrid warfare. I was wondering whether you could explore a little what the research understands as hybrid conflict, which would include hybrid warfare and hybrid threats. And how is contemporary hybrid activity different from similar actions in the past? Uh, thanks, Abby, and uh, thanks, Delina. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting project. I mean, we started looking at this back in um, in 2020, and it, it fell out of some broader conversations I was having with Civic around the UK's protection of civilians strategy and how there was an understandable focus on what might be called conventional conflict, although labels are going to be problematic in this conversation. But really looking at you know, the impact of shelling, the impact of airstrikes, not just as physical harm to civilians, but also psychological harm, but also you know the impact on essential services such as water and power. Part of that then linked to, there's been lots of discussion about so-called new forms of, of, of warfare. And what we wanted to do was see whether these you know, new forms of warfare, had, you know, what the implications were for thinking about protection of civilians. And there is a real challenge around this business of, of hybrid conflict. I mean, there are multiple terms in common use, the grey zone, ambiguous warfare, threshold uh, warfare. And, and indeed, the roots of the phrase hybrid warfare go back to um, a mix of regular uh, and, and irregular forces in conflict, which is genuinely nothing new from the Roman period. Uh, you know, perhaps one of the most straightforward examples is the Vietnam War, where you have the regular North Vietnamese army operating alongside the irregular Viet Cong. 
But what we were really starting to think about, you know, rather than this just straightforward mix of regular and irregular, was how states were starting to use the full range of tools, the full range of instruments of, of state power for the purposes of coercion. Some of this was taking place below the threshold of armed conflict, but some of it was taking place alongside that armed conflict. An example would be that in Ukraine, we had seen cyber attacks on the power grid in Kiev, so some distance from the immediate conflict zone, but also the use of of information warfare in Donbass and also in Crimea. And the sort of spectrum of tools we were looking at were economic tools, information warfare, which is probably one of the biggest elements of this, but including the use of ideas of culture, and also particular ways in which military operations are conducted. And indeed, why this is, I think, important in thinking about protection of civilians is quite often, I would argue, in most cases, you know, these activities are primarily targeted against civilians. So for our work, we decided to think about hybrid threats as being those activities that took place away from the conflict zone, including, it has to be said, in in this context, amongst Ukraine's friends and allies, and then hybrid warfare as those in the conflict zone itself. And, and, you know, our finding included the fact that the impact on civilians of these activities are primarily psychological. So cyber attacks limiting access to, um, to power grids taking place on the same day, you know, a year apart, sending quite a powerful message, making people feel vulnerable. The idea that fires that had been conducted by one side would be blamed um, on another side, and in and, and this context, particularly blamed on Ukrainian armed forces when the evidence was against it. So these are the sort of you know, broad conclusions we came to uh, around the ideas of what is uh, hybrid warfare. And Lisa, now turning to you, you and already started to answer this, but can we go more specifically into what these hybrid conflicts look like in Ukraine? What sort of examples are we seeing? Yes, I think UN provided a really great framework to all the different aspects or big buckets of areas where we can see manifestations of using hybrid threats and tactics uh, in Ukraine. And as you mentioned, uh, information warfare is obviously the biggest one, right? And um, most of the interviewees uh, who participated in the research uh, highlighted several times that what struck them, especially in, in the context of Ukraine, is the easy floating of uh, disinformation or false information between social media, which is usually used for this type of uh, tactics, between social media and the mainstream media. And obviously, you know, like the information warfare tactics are used to spread disinformation with the aim to undermine civilian confidence, in our case, in the armed forces of Ukraine, and undermine trust between the Ukrainian authorities and the population of the non-government controlled areas. There were also efforts uh, by the de facto authorities in non-government controlled areas to deliberately misattribute specific incidents. And one of the examples that come to my mind can be dated back to June 2019, when media in non-government controlled areas published reports of an attack on a mosque in the north of Donetsk city that came under the fire while hosting celebration for a religious festival. And the media, the separatist-backed media and the Russian media, alleged that the armed forces of Ukraine was deliberately targeting Muslim civilians. 
However, at the same time, we looked at the OSCE reports, which said that, yes, you know, like there was some um, evidence of firing in the area, but most probably it was coming from the separatist uh, controlled area. So although the armed forces of Ukraine came out with a statement, with an explanation, uh, you know, like what was happening there, but they don't have a lot of influence on the media on the non-government controlled areas. So, you know, this information was very uh, well picked up by Russian-backed separatists and in Russia. And as you had mentioned that, you know, like the probably uh, a very important uh, feature of using information in, in the Ukraine context is um, directly influencing military operations. For example, in the early stages of the campaign in Donbass, separatist military personnel used civilians to disrupt Ukrainian military activity. What they were doing, they were uh, organizing civilians, directing them uh, to create roadblocks uh, and kind of surrounding Ukrainian military convoys, preventing them from movement. One of the biggest you know, like stories, which was again picked up by propaganda in Russia and by separatists, Russian-backed separatists, was a picture of mother who placed her child in front of an armored vehicle and screaming hysterically at the armed forces commander that the child would be killed if the vehicle tried to move. So, you know, like obviously these pictures are very good to be used when um, trying to break the trust uh, towards the military and basically Ukrainian authorities. A couple of more examples could go to the other areas we looked at, uh, cultural affairs, uh, for example. And that's what we have here is the most popular narrative is that um, depict Western Europe as aggressively championing the freedom of sexual orientation and gender equality and the argument that these ideals will disrupt uh, dis- disrupt Ukraine's social stability. Actually, a narrative that is very popular in other bordering countries, both bordering with Russia. And obviously, you know, like uh, when we get to economic pressure, gas is a powerful tool that is used by Russia, not only uh, when talking about Ukraine, but um, I guess, you know, like we can see that it's very well used in Europe um, these days as well. So that's another example that applies both to Ukraine and, and actually other countries as well. And uh, probably the last example, I will elaborate on what UN already mentioned, cyber attacks on civilian infrastructure. And there is a concrete example uh, when in December 2015, the control centers of three Ukrainian electricity distribution companies were remotely accessed and uh, more than 200,000 consumers were cut off from power, and it was during one of the coldest and darkest days of the year in December. Uh, so again, uh, a good example of how hybrid tactics is used to undermine the uh, ability of the authorities to control the situation. And it's beyond the conflict zone. It's uh, We are talking about Western Ukraine in this particular case. So it's a message to the whole population of the country rather than just a small part of the popul- of civilians directly involved in the conflict zone. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you especially for giving us very many examples to understand this. I was wondering, what are Ukrainian authorities doing and what do you think they should do to reduce and to mitigate the risk of civilian harm that arises from these hybrid activities? 
In the Ukraine context, I think the biggest progress was made on the military side. As I mentioned earlier, and one of the main goals of um, using hybrid warfare, information warfare tactics, is undermining trust between civilians and the Ukrainian authorities or the military, especially when we are talking about the conflict zone where the presence of military is pretty high and they're basically representing the government there. So uh, the Ukraine armed forces back in 2014 at the early stage of the conflict have created a civil military cooperation directorate or CIMIC directorate. And the goal of was creating this liaison or connections between the military and civilians. So it was a good recognition that Civilians are a big part of, 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 of the context of what was going on, and there is a need to manage those relationships between the uh, civilians and the military. So that was uh, one big step forward to counter hybrid warfare. Another interesting practice is setting up a civilian harm tracking cell, and it was done in 2018. So it's it's an analytical unit within the armed forces of Ukraine, concretely in the Joint Forces Operations Command, which collects information on incidents of civilian harm on both government-controlled and non-government-controlled territories. It analyzes this information and then provides recommendations to the commanders on ways to mitigate civilian harm or prevent civilian harm. And what we saw was is that they creatively used this tool, this internal resource uh, that they established, to use it for strategic communications as well. So we saw several instances when they were proactively first to go out with explanations on circumstances around civilian harm, which prevented the manipulation of the information by the other side. So, for example, several months ago, there was an incident when a civilian was injured by uh, the Ukraine military while uh, that person was violating some uh, rules. He was trying to cross the contact line in a prohibited area. So the Ukraine military was the first to go out and to explain publicly what happened, why the person was injured, what type of assistance, medical assistance was provided to that person by the military again you know, to make sure that uh, his life is uh, not threatened. So it was a good example of using this internal analytical tool for countering some of um, this information, potential disinformation attempt. And going back to uh, this need to create efficient communication between the military and the civilians, what we were helping to test during the last uh, year is um, civil military dialogues. Obviously, this requires a lot of resources. CIMIC officers, as well as civilians, uh, have to learn how to constructively engage in dialogues. So it's, it's a number of capacity building sessions, but then the outcomes are really encouraging and uh, above the expectations. Uh, when the military and the civilians can talk together, discuss all sensitive issues, protection issues, and find solutions, that's very encouraging. And that obviously increases the trust uh, between the military and the civilians and the belief that um, you know the Ukrainian authorities are, can be helpful. So that's something that the... Um, 
concretely the military can do and already started doing in Ukraine. Obviously, when we look at uh, the whole big range of uh, hybrid tactics and areas uh, where they are used, economic pressure, cultural affairs, uh, cyber attacks, it's obvious that there should be a whole-of-government approach. It cannot be resolved with just the military or even just one standalone ministry. And so probably that's where uh, the um, Ukrainian government needs to focus if they uh, plan to have a comprehensive approach to counter any hybrid warfare attacks. Thanks very much. And more broadly, it's not just in Ukraine that we see these hybrid threats play out. And it's not just the Ukrainian military and government that are engaging in these types of conflicts. I want to ask more broadly, what should states be doing to prepare their militaries to protect civilians from hybrid activities? So probably it goes back to uh, what I already mentioned, that the key word is preparedness. Obviously, we see that hybrid tactics is becoming more and more used in different, not only conflict uh, situations, just uh, in any situation where governments uh, or countries want to put pressure on others. For example, we see the uh, tactics that is widely used by Russia several times uh, already when building up military along the borders with Ukraine. It's another tactic to put pressure on their negotiation with NATO, with uh, the US, OSE and others. So that's another hybrid uh, tactic that is being tested right now, as we uh, see. So therefore, for countries, obviously, it's it's very uh, important to look at the bigger picture and to start thinking of comprehensive plans of how to prevent or to prepare not only the militaries, and I already mentioned several examples how the military can be prepared and think uh, about, you know, countering some of the hybrid attacks, but um, also think through uh, comprehensive plans where all different ministries or administrations or authorities can put together their efforts to foresee uh, in the first place and then use preventive measures if any of the hybrid attacks are occurring. Thank you, Lisa. I would now move to you and, and perhaps connecting to what Lisa was saying about great power confrontation, perhaps ask what lessons from hybrid warfare in Ukraine you think it's possible to apply to potential great power confrontation? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Delina. And I think the first thing I would observe, and I look at this particularly through the prism of Western militaries, there were a lot of lessons learned from the experience of you know, so-called population-centric counterinsurgency about understanding civilian populations and engaging with civilian populations. And I think one of the things we need to take forward from that experience, looking at the experience of Ukraine, is that this now needs to be in all forms of conflict, confrontation and competition, that militaries need to have thinking about the civilian population at the heart of what they do. And I'm not sure that that necessarily is the case at the moment. I think the other observation I would make, which is, if you like, a, a sort of side sidestep from um, Ukraine, is that these hybrid activities are likely to be a part of all future great power confrontation. You know, this use of, of a range of tools for coercive purposes. And I sit here at the moment in, in Vietnam. I look at the South China Sea and, and there we see maritime militias, so fishermen who are effectively being 
militarized as part of a competition over the resources of the South China Sea. And this has all sorts of you know, impacts on the civilian populations. You know, in the first instance, the state competition is competition between states is inhibiting and, and limiting the access of you know, those fishing communities to fishing grounds, which they have traditionally fished. And then at the same time, it's also militarizing, you know, those, those fishing fleets with, you know, impacts that I don't think we particularly yet understand. And as the debate shifts even beyond Ukraine in, in the UK and the US as well, towards a greater focus on great power competition, what actions should we be taking more broadly to make sure that we're protecting civilian populations from some of the hybrid activities that you've laid out? I, I think this is really now about developing ideas around societal resilience. It's about making our populations more resilient to these coercive challenges. And you know, some of that is about getting our populations to start taking more responsibility for you know, their safety and security. And the, the classic example of this is is, is cybersecurity. You know, it, it only takes one person to have a vulnerability for a risk to be created, which you know could have a broader impact. So, explaining to populations and you know and, and getting them to take a, a responsibility for this. So there's a role for education. I think you know this the, the challenge of of information warfare, of, of propaganda, of disinformation. We've got to go back to educating. Uh, youth in uh, in critical reading and and to not necessarily take things at face value and as Lisa mentioned you know the key really is not just a whole of government approach but a whole of society approach and and some of this needs supported by the government and framed by governments but it shouldn't necessarily be government directed and I, you know there is already some great examples of this taking place in places like Sweden in Finland and indeed um, you know local to me here in Singapore I was hoping you and you could develop a little more on this and perhaps also reference as a solution what role civil society can play in improving the understanding of the impact of hybrid activities on civilians. How do you think civil society can help protect civilian populations from hybrid activities? I, mean, I think this goes back to this being a whole of society approach and I think civil society has significant role to play. I mean, some of the activities we're talking about in building societal resilience, some of those are better led by civil society. You know, some of those education programs will be better led, I think, by civil society than by governments. But I think one of the areas in which civil society can make a significant contribution is in the nicer sense to continue this sort of research. One of the challenges we had was it was a very short project, a fairly limited project. And whilst I think we have perhaps, you know, we have reasonably convincingly demonstrated there's a correlation between these hybrid activities and negative impacts on the civilian population, certainly in the form of psychological harm, it would be great to get some more research that really started to demonstrate the causality, because I think not only then will that then inform how we develop these approaches to societal resilience, but in the longer term, it has the potential to, you know, to change the conversation between states about what's acceptable and what is not acceptable in terms of using these coercive tools. Thank you very much, Ewan. And thank you, Lisa, as well. Lisa, if you have anything else to add on this, given that obviously, um, your expertise on Ukraine would be particularly useful to us and to our listeners. Please do. 
Thank you all for this opportunity to discuss the research that Yuan led and we worked with him on looking into connections between protection of civilians and hybrid warfare. I think we covered most of the things we looked at while conducting the research. And um, I invite everybody who wants to look into more details and probably more examples drawn from the Ukraine context in the research. It's available online on the website of the Center for Civilians in Conflict under the uh, Ukraine programs page. And it's called Entering the Gray Zone, Hybrid Warfare and the Protection of Civilians in Ukraine. Thank you, Ewan and Lisa. That's all we have time for today. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Until next time, from me, Abigail Watson. And me, Delina Goggio. Goodbye. Warpod from Safer World. You can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month, wherever you get your podcasts, by searching for and following Warpod. And to find out more about our work at Safer World, please visit saferworld.org.uk.